Welcome to the European Uncovered podcast, where we discuss science and science-based tools for everyday life. I'm Aya Tarabin. I'm a translational neuroscience student and a researcher at University College London. Also want to emphasize that this podcast is my personal goal of bringing zero cost to consumer information to the public. So it is separate from my other roles. This episode will discuss the neuroscience of romantic relationships. It will focus on desire, love and attachment. It will also outline tools for those seeking to find a strong, healthy relationship or for those wanting to strengthen an existing relationship. Now, thanks to modern imaging studies, we are now able to take a peek inside the besotted brain and see what goes on during all stages of love, from lust to lasting relationships. Now, I'm no expert myself, but I'm being joined by one, luckily enough. I'd like to welcome to the show, Dr. Sandra Lanslag. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for being here. You're really at the forefront of research, and um, you've been bridging the gap between emotion and um, cognition when it comes to romantic love um, uh, for, for quite some time now. Now, I guess the question kind of begs itself here. Um, what would you really be able to tell us about the brain when we first fall in love? Yeah, so, so a lot of people ask me that, right? What happens in the brain when people fall in love? Um, and it, that's actually a really interesting question, but also difficult to answer mm-hmm. because uh, the answer is a lot. A lot happens in your brain when you fall in love. Um, most people have experienced this, you know, when you fall in love, uh, there's a lot of uh, um, bodily symptoms that happen. Um, you start to think differently. Um, you start to behave differently. Uh, you start to feel differently and all those things of course are caused by something in the brain so there's a lot of things that happen in your brain all right and um well what are some of the most commonly associated neurotransmitters yeah so for example um well i must also say it is difficult to study this in healthy human subjects Mm -hmm. uh, because a lot of the sort of the neurobiology work is done in animals and animals mate so they feel sexual desire and some animals form pair bonds, so they have they feel attachment, uh, but infatuation or so this early stage uh, love, um, I don't know if animals feel that, and I don't know how I could tell if they did, mm-hmm. and so we don't know a whole lot about the neurobiology of that type of love because that's just difficult to study in animals or humans. Um, but there are some sort of uh, the usual suspects, uh, such as dopamine, adrenaline, serotonin, um, testosterone, estrogen, um, uh, vasopressin, oxytocin. So those are all hormones and neurotransmitters that, that are very likely to play a role, but we just don't have a whole lot of data um, in humans about, about exactly what role they play um, yet. So that's definitely something we still need to test. Wow, that's, that's very interesting. Um, I, I guess there's a lot we still don't know about the neurobiology of romantic relationships and um, love in that context. Uh, Maybe it's because there's a lot of things about love that we can't control. But uh, today I was hoping maybe we can focus on the controllables in a sense. Um, And uh, I just wanted to ask, so what are some of the most prominent uh, psychophysiological characteristics of romantic love that anyone that falls in love ought to experience? Yeah, so so especially this early stage of love is a very arousing uh, feeling, mm-hmm. which means that a lot of physiological responses, a lot of bodily responses are happening. So your heart may start racing, you may uh, blush, 
you may um, stutter, your breathing may go up, you may start mm-hmm. like clanking hands or shaking <laughs> knees. Uh, so those are all uh, sort of things that happen in your body when you are sort of newly in love, this very intense infatuation. Um, and then there's also sort of more the cognitive aspect. So people that are in love think about their beloved for a good portion of the day. Um, they are distracted from other tasks, such as their work or their homework, because they're thinking about their beloved all the time. Um, and there's something that a lot of people um, don't realize, although I'm sure they've experienced it. So we think a lot about the euphoria, euphoria, right? People are very happy when they're in love. But especially this early stage love is also accompanied by a lot of negative emotions, such as you know, it's very stressful, people are very nervous, they are insecure, there's a lot of jealousy going on. Um, and I think people often forget the negative emotions that go with infatuation as well. Oh, definitely. I mean, um, speaking of the negatives, when you first touch on intrusive thoughts, the first thing I thought of was um, this article that I read recently, and they were kind of highlighting how uh, this intrusive thinking um, is kind of associated with low levels of serotonin and can fall under some form of obsessive behavior. Uh, that we tend to engage in and think is quite normal in a sense. Um, and well, what do you have to say about that? What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so that's a very inter- interesting hypothesis. I did one study in which I tested the blood level of serotonin in, mm-hmm. in healthy volunteers. And uh, of course, we're mostly interested in serotonin in the brain, but you know, we can't just test that in healthy volunteers in humans. Uh, so I went with serotonin blood level, which is sort of correlated, which is related to how much serotonin is in your brain. Mm. Um, and I um, found an interesting difference between men and women mm. where it was actually sort of in the hypothesized way in men, but in women it was the other way around. So that more obsessive thinking about the blood was actually associated with more serotonin in the blood. So this is something that, um, that is a very interesting hypothesis, but I'm not sure that we have a lot of data to really support that the obsessive thinking about the beloved is associated with low serotonin levels. Yeah, we definitely need a lot more research on that topic. Yeah, but, but it's 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 fascinating you touched on uh, gender differences. So uh, have, have you come up with a hypothesis on to why there are such differences? No, that's a great question. And actually, I often don't study gender differences because while there are some differences between men and women in love, I think a lot of it is is also similar. So usually mm. I don't study gender differences. And I, and I don't think I had a really good explanation uh, for that previous finding. It's it's It was sort of an exploratory study, so I'm, I'm not even confident that what I found in that study is the way it is. Uh, I, I think it's just a, a strong indication that we need more research uh, to test that very interesting hypothesis. Okay, that's nice. Then... I think we should just stick to the common ground. Uh, and I think we can all agree that love is not always a smooth sail experience. Um, there are cases where we fall in love with someone who doesn't love us back, or we might fall in love with the wrong person, um, you know, such as someone who doesn't really treat us very well. Uh, so in, in instances like these, um, we may want to decrease our feelings towards them. And um, in terms of intensity, you, you, you are the expert here. Is it possible to regulate our feelings of love for someone? Can we, um, are there certain tools that we can use to, you know, increase or decrease um, our love for someone in any way? Yeah, so I've done several studies on the topic. Um, Maybe it's interesting to talk about beliefs about love regulation first. So I've Mm. shown that people typically 
think they cannot really control how in love they are. Uh, some people even think they shouldn't. They say love is a natural process, so you shouldn't try to control it. Just it is what it is. Um, and then a, a good portion of, of the people think that um, they can't, or they they say uh, other people can can control how in love they are, but I can't. Um, however, in in several studies now, I have shown that if I tell people in the lab to think certain things, that does change how in love they are. So people can do it despite what they may think. Um, that, despite that they may think they can't. Um, so in one of my studies, uh, I have shown that people that were heartbroken, mm. so they had they were upset about a romantic breakup, um, if I had them think about negative aspects of their beloved, such as, you know, they are always late, they never do the dishes, uh, I hate that blue sweater that they <laughs> love, uh, you know, things like that, um, that decreased how in love they were with their ex-partner. And of course, my goal was for them to feel better because I thought, you know, if you're if you're upset about a breakup, if I can make you feel less in love with your ex-partner, you're going to feel better. Um, now, they did feel less in love with their ex-partner, but they also felt worse. So that was an unexpected finding, but I've replicated it in two studies now. So it's, it's real, I think. Um, and I think it's because these are all very unpleasant thoughts, right? Okay. You think about all these negative things about your beloved. Um, so now in that study, I also had them think about positive things that were unrelated to their beloved, such as uh, what would you do if you won the lottery? Uh, what's your favorite food? What's your favorite movie? Um, and I found that, so that's distraction. Um, so that I found that distraction did not change how in love people were with their ex-partner, but it did make them feel better. Oh, okay. So okay. Um, what I, I didn't formally test this, but what I think would probably help if you're heartbroken um, is that you first think about all the things that you don't like about your ex-partner to be mm -hmm. less in love. Now you also feel more unpleasant and then you go and distract yourself to now feel more pleasant. So I think probably people should use both strategies uh, if the goal is to be and less in love and feel better. Wow, <laughs> it makes a lot of sense, um, but it's quite contrary to the norm. So we're, uh, we kind of feel like... Um, uh, love makes us somewhat blind and that um, you should conquer all in a sense and that we have no control over the way we feel towards someone. Um, so what you're telling us today sounds really nice for a change. <laughs> it shows you how much control you have over how you feel. And um, I, I think I think this this might not sound like something quite relevant to be talking about to maybe um the guys listening to this I, I mean we girls are very much in touch with our emotions but i don't think you realize how much of our day gets eaten up by just thinking about our loved ones um or e even you know thinking about love everything we do from the movies we watch to the music we listen to to the conversations we have with our um friends it's kind of all centered around love in one way or another and um, i think just realizing how much control we have over this and how much it does affect our lives other aspects of our lives just plays a crucial role um but i mean okay so you you kind of showed us how we do have control and we can increase or decrease our intensity of love towards someone but let's talk about um you know certain things that are quite hard to change and that's the ugly truth and that is um our attachment styles 
So it has been very well established that there are obviously three ways that are, uh, you know, love shows up in our brain. And these are lust, attraction, and attachment. Um, how does our childhood attachment types inform our adult attachment style to romantic partners? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think you're talking about secure attachment and then um, uh, avoidant and anxious attachment. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, that, so children are attached in some way to their caregiver, depending on how the caregiver responds to their needs. If a caregiver um, is responsive, so attends to the child when a child needs it, so the child's hungry, the caregiver feeds the child, the child is in pain, the caregiver gives the child a kiss, um, that then leads to a secure attachment. Um, if the caregiver does not respond properly to the child's need needs, then that relates to, then that um, can cause an uh, avoidant uh, attachment style. And then if the caregiver is too responsive, so if the child is just nicely playing by themselves, now the caregiver keeps sort of intruding and keeps uh, interacting with the child, even though the child wants to be left alone or wants to do something themselves and the caregiver insists that they cannot do it themselves, that can cause anxious attachment. Um, and um, we know that your attachment style to your caregiver is predictive of your attachment style to a romantic partner later in life. Now, it's not necessarily exactly the same because as you grow up, also your friends start to play an important role. So if your friends are really responsive to your needs um, and you are securely attached to your friends, then you can learn that, you know, other people can uh, be very responsive, even if your caregiver wasn't. Um, and so it's not not a one on one, but usually people's attachment styles are pretty consistent when they grow up. And so people that are uh, avoidantly attached to a romantic partner actually say, you know, I don't really need this partner. I can do things by myself. Um, and basically they are feeling that the partner isn't to be trusted. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, they say they love me, but that may not be true. Or they may, they may cheat on me in a few days, months, years. Um, and that's an avoidant attachment style. And an anxious attachment style to a romantic partner is where um, you don't believe you are worthy of feeling loved. So these people are very insecure. They keep asking, do you really love me? Uh, they are also sort of afraid the partner is going to cheat on them and, and doesn't love them and is going to leave them, and which would be the end of the world to an anxiously attached individual. Um, now, we all have some degree of, of insecure attachment, so avoidant or anxious attachment. That's, that's very normal. Mm -hmm. Like only one third of the children is securely attached and about a third is anxiously attached and about a third is avoidantly attached to some degree. So this is not like, this is very common, even in adults. But it may be good to, to realize the kind of attachment style you have and, if, and see if you can maybe... If you're avoidantly attached, see if you can learn to trust your partner a bit more, that they can take care of you and that you maybe need them a little bit. And when you are anxiously attached, try to realize that they are probably telling the truth if they tell you, you they love you. Um, and, and you asking them for confirmation all the time may even end up pushing them away. Um, so you've got to be careful with that. Um, so maybe good to, to sort of do some self-reflection and see what kind of attachment style you have and see if you can make some small changes to become a little bit more securely attached. All right. So what what I seem to get from um, uh, what you kindly told us is that there is no wrong or right attachment style, but it all starts with awareness, figuring out where you stand um, with, uh, you know, your type of attachment and then trying to 
pretty much get as close as you can to being securely attached. And that can happen by surrounding yourself by people that are securely attached. And it does not necessarily have to be a romantic partner. So it can be friends, colleagues, um, even family members. Um, so yeah, even so technically, even when it comes to attachments, we are far more in control than we, um, you know, ought to think we are. Um, wow. Okay. Well, you know, especially with romantic relationships, um, things are not very static. So everything is in constant flux. And, um, as much as we try to make things go as planned, something, sometimes they just do not. Um, <laughs> so how could we, you know, know, how can we just simplify this for ourselves? How can we know what to look for in someone? Um, where does compatibility really matter? So um, is it in personality dimensions or do we look at political, religious views and ideological values? Where do we start? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So there's this common saying that says opposites attract. Opposites. Uh, <laughs> but research has shown that opposites opposites are not a great base for a relationship so relationships are typically happier if people are more similar so actually birds of a feather flock together is a better saying to to uh indicate sort of what you should be looking for in a in a partner so um and, and you can see how how this would work right if you agree on um you know how much you're going to visit family or you agree on what it what is cheating in your relationship uh or if you agree on what movies to watch together or what hobbies or what restaurants to eat at you know you can see how life would be a lot easier than people that always have the opposite and so yes yeah, so it has been shown that typically if people have the same religion or maybe neither is religious um and the same political values and sort of also just more life values or life goals um that usually leads to happier relationships than when people are very different yep so you basically want to, want to try and find someone who's uh, a little similar to you maybe not exactly the same but <laughs> well, maybe not in physical features <laughs> so the, i i guess as well, that's that's nice for a change because um, usually, as you said, people assume that opposites attract. Maybe they do. Maybe they do, but in the in the short term, not in the long run. Right. Just two things, right? The initial attraction, and then how happy are you going to be in a long term relationship with this person? Those are two different questions. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah, but that's the thing about us, about us humans. We're very short sighted when it comes to love. Um, I mean, just look at lust, for example, that, you know, intolerable neural itch that everyone seems to fall for um, and assume it's love. Um, I think that's how we get, that's how most troubles start in relationships when you have certain expectations from something and then they have different expectations. And uh, yeah, and that's um, how the plot twist of every romantic movie and like and happens, right? I thought you loved me. I, I but yeah, so how do we deal with that? How can we distinguish lust from love, long-lasting love? Well, so so I think lust is an important aspect of it. So mm -hmm. um, oftentimes the early stage infatuation is accompanied by lust, mm -hmm. not always. Um, but people can also experience lust without infatuation or attachment. 
Um, and we also know that lust decreases over time. So sexual desire decreases over time in long-term relationships, which can cause problems, especially if the other partner still does have a high sexual desire. Um, and so I've actually done a study on this too. I have shown that um, if you fantasize about having sex with your partner, that increases sexual desire for that partner. So if you are in a relationship and your sexual desire for your partner is lower than you would want it to be, for example, because it is decreasing since the start of the relationship or because your partner has a higher sexual desire than you, um, you could start sort of during the day, start fantasizing about having sex with your partner and then that should increase your sexual desire levels. So I think, you know, um, uh, lust, I call it a form of love. Some people say, you know, it's not love, it's just lust. I do think in relationship, lust is very important. Sexual desire mm -hmm. is very important for having relationships. And again, there's the compatibility, right? Yeah. Uh, if your partner wants sex every day and you only want it, wants it, want it, want it once a month, there's a, you know, you're different and that makes it difficult to be in a happy relationship. Whereas if your uh, levels of sexual desire are sort of similar, that makes it easier to, to then be in a happy relationship. All right. So um, from what you, you're telling us here is that lust is kind of fundamental to initiating a relationship or. Um, well, so, so there are people that are not interested in sex at all. And that, mm -hmm. that's fine, of course. Um, it is a problem if their partner feels differently about it. So so, so sexual desire or lust is not essential for everyone, but for okay. a lot of people it is. All right. Um, yeah. So lust and attraction don't always go hand in hand in people, does it? Yeah. Yeah, so, so you know, just sexual desire by itself can sort of be satisfied by having a one-night stand. And when mm -hmm. you have a one-night stand, you're maybe a little bit picky, but not too picky. So yes, that person needs to look good and needs to maybe smell good, but you don't really care about, you know, uh, what job they have or how much money they have or what, what are they in school? What is their major, right? So, so whatever, right? Um, that could satisfy sexual desire. But if you are really sort of falling in love with someone more in terms of infatuation or attachment, now you become very picky because you, the person you are infatuated with is the the most beautiful person in the world, the funniest <laughs> person, the sweetest person. You want to spend the rest of your life with that person and not anyone else. Mm. And so that infatuation is also often accompanied by sexual desire, but it is a very different feeling because you are very picky. And it's this one special person. But if you only experience sexual desire, it's you could you could just be happy by having a one night stand. Oh wow, <laughs> and it's uh, it's quite you know it's quite fascinating how we all fall on one end of the spectrum. So no one's the same, and and that's the struggle of dating uh, nowadays is that you have to find someone to meet you in the middle in a way. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh well, <laughs> I, yeah, I think that's what what makes us humans very um, fascinating in a way, and that's how we stand out from other primates in a sense, right? Um, we're picky. We both like. Um, certain mental images of what the ideal partner would be and then we go out there and we try to find them in one way or another <laughs> um but yeah I th but there's something that's going on nowadays and it seems like we happen to put a lot of pressure on our partners in a way so um especially in the context of romantic relationships you kind of expect them to provide you with everything 
Um, and, you know, social comparison as well has kind of ex has exasperated this, um, you know, with social media and the dating app. So the more you see, the more you need in one one partner and one person. Um, and that often leaves us disappointed. Um, what are your thoughts on this and how can we navigate our way through uh, with everything that's going on around us? Yeah, so, so I have two answers to that. Uh, one is that I've also in some studies shown that people can increase love feelings mm -hmm. by uh, thinking about all the positive aspects of your beloved. So, you know, uh, they are so funny. They are so, you know, they always give you great gifts. They look so good in those jeans, whatever it is that you like about <laughs> your, your, your partner. If you, if you think about those things that increases love feelings for the partner. So we know that love feelings, both infatuation and attachment and sexual desire decrease slowly over time in relationships which could lead to breakups mm. uh, and so that could be a strategy thinking about the positive aspects of your beloved could be a strategy to increase love feelings or, or prevent them from declining uh, so that you are not um, inclined to um, to break up with this person if the relationship otherwise is fine right no one's cheating no one's abusive um, yeah um, so that's one part of it so there's something you can do to to try and prevent the decline of love feelings over time and the other thing that you touched on, I think is also a very important point, um, that our expectations nowadays are very different from relationships than what they used to be. So if you think historically, uh, like way back, uh, marriages were business transactions, right? So people yeah. married because of possessions or land or whatever. Mm. Um, there was a time when marriages, uh, when women especially needed to be married uh, in order to, to, to live, right? They weren't allowed to work. So they didn't have money unless they had a husband that could provide for them. Um, later on, marriages became a little bit more, people became a little bit more selective and that the other person needed to be nice, right? Yeah. So, you know, at least the pleasant person to hang out with. Um, and then nowadays, I think people are very, very picky in that they're like, you know, this person needs to bring the best out of me <laughs> and we need to have a super happy relationship. Um, and so, so our expectations of marriage are changing over time and they are also becoming higher, right? Mm -hmm. If you, if all you need, if all you expect for a marriage is money, and the person is providing you with money, then you're happy, right? You're happy in a relationship. Um, if your expectation is that this other person is like always like supporting you, and 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 you never fight, then you are more likely to be disappointed just because your expectations are so high. And, and so that is something I think we need to realize, like I'm not necessarily saying it's, it's wrong to marry someone you love and not just marrying someone for money or protection or food or something. You know, I'm glad we're past the stage where, where women needed to get married in order just to be. Um, but we must realize that we are now getting a lot more picky and therefore more likely to be disappointed. So uh, if it's possible, see if you can lower your expectations um, <laughs> to the degree that you're still okay with with the relationship, right? Because if someone is, is outright abusive or not treating you right, of course, that's, that's you shouldn't live with that. Um, but, you know, maybe they're not always very supportive or, or not always bringing the best out of you or not always happy and, and, and cheerful. And maybe that that's okay. Definitely. I mean, I think, I think it just starts with being aware of the fact that our mating selection and sexual psychology is being bombarded by thousands of options on a daily basis so it's uh, it's not about just lowering standards it's about understanding that you can't seek divinity in one human being and not you know <laughs> expect to get disappointed um i'm no like i'm obviously not in a position to profess anything this is just a matter of opinion and i don't think anyone is to blame um but 
yeah, I mean, um, it's funny because we run after relationships and then um, we get what we want. And if it doesn't end well, we we feel devastated. Um, and for us to be able to recover, um, it kind of takes us a while, doesn't it? Um, I, I just, um, I want to know about breakups. So you, you published a very interesting study um, titled Downregulation of Love uh, Feelings After a Romantic Breakup, uh, which was uh, based on a self-report and uh, electrophysiological data. So you tested a variety of cognitive strategies and you found that uh, one that worked best for helping people to get over a breakup. Could you uh, tell us more about this science-based strategy? Yeah, so, so I already mentioned it earlier. Um, so this was the uh, thinking about negative aspects of your beloved is the strategy that um, decreased love feelings, but then made people more unpleasant. Yeah, so this is a, a study that I did in a lab where I had people come in who were upset about a breakup regardless of how long ago that was. Okay. Um, and so some people, uh, the, the breakup had been like years ago, but they were still upset about it. Oh. Um, yeah. And then I had them do these different strategies. Mm. And then I had to look at pictures of their beloved, see how their brain responded. And I found that, yeah, so thinking negatively about your ex-partner decreases love feelings, but made them feel more unpleasant. And then distraction made didn't change love feelings, but made people feel more pleasant. And then I had another strategy that... Um, uh, was sort of a mindfulness approach, which is thinking like, it's okay to be in love with, with an ex-partner, uh, or love is just brain processes and neurotransmitters and hormones. So this is sort of um, uh, uh, rethinking the love feeling and, and trying to accept being in love with someone you're no longer with without judgment. And we were very excited about that strategy because we know mindfulness is a very effective emotion regulation strategy. But unfortunately, in this particular study, it did not change love feelings or how pleasant or unpleasant someone felt. Okay, I mean, um, but but it's good. Uh, it's good to put it out there because um, there's no such thing as um, <laughs> unimportant findings, right? Um, yeah. So researchers can definitely build on this um, in the future. Um, so... Okay, well, speaking about that, we've kind of touched on attachment theory. Um, uh, we've spoken about desire. Um, we've spoken about um, long-lasting love. Now, what about um, passionate love? You know that first uh, stage where you you're mad about someone, and um, it um, well, according to the papers out there, this just generally lasts six to eighteen months, um, not longer. And well, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. I <laughs> know you go ahead. <laughs> well, so I was going to say, uh, we know it decreases over time relatively quickly. Mm. Um, I don't know where that number six to 18 months really came from, like if we have any data to support that. Um, what I think happens is, especially when people start a relationship, then it decreases relatively quickly, um, probably at different rates for people too. But yes, I found that in my research too, that uh, people that were not in a relationship usually had higher infatuation levels than people that were in a relationship who were higher again than people that were living together or married. Um, so it decreases uh, over time. And I think especially with relationship formation, when you when you start becoming comfortable with being with someone, mm -hmm. I think the infatuation, like there's really the nervousness and insecurities go down. And then usually attachment or companionate love uh, increases over time. So that, that takes a little time to develop. And I think that doesn't start to develop until you're in a relationship with someone. Yeah, I think I think the, the 
the the thing with us nowadays is that we're not patient enough to have that companion you know um a type of attachment and love form um so if something breaks we just leave it <laughs> and we move on to the next um so if we were not to do that okay how can we sustain long-lasting relationships what are um some takeaway tips you'd like to leave us with yeah so some some tips are i think i uh, have uh, reasonable expectations mm-hmm and then do a little bit of love upregulation. So think about the positive aspects of your beloved. Uh, so the things that you do like about them, because that really increases love feelings. And then also, uh, research has shown that waiting out unhappier periods uh, is is effective. So everyone goes, every relationship goes through up and downs, um, and and waiting those downs out, unless they're again, you know, if it's like a real real down, you maybe should leave but for example you know people become less happy in a relationship when they have young children mm-hmm. and so that's just that's very normal um and so waiting out those periods uh can really help and your relationship will probably recover yeah. all right um uh can i send another link just for the ending because it's ending in one minute <laughs> thank you <laughs> so so i'm starting a new research line with a new graduate student um on uh, the similarities and differences between love and addiction so a lot has been written about how love and addiction are look similar. You know, people that are in love seem addicted to their beloved, um, but there's not a lot of again a lot of data that not a lot of studies that really directly compare love and addiction. So we're going to try and and do that. We're going to see how craving for the beloved and craving for in this case a vape um, and attention for the beloved and and a vape are similar or different. Uh, just to get to get started on um it, how similar are love and addiction and how are they different yep so i'm excited about that new research line oh wow um and uh what wh- why how so you're obviously building um on this from pre- previous work and um why have you chosen to uh use the vape <laughs> oh yes well that's a, a practical consideration <laughs> sorry so that's a practical <laughs> consideration um because uh we want to recruit people who are addicted and in love and so it will be difficult to use any addiction to illegal substances because people would not be willing to admit that and come into the lab and then um we were thinking maybe alcohol or cigarettes but it looks like vaping is becoming more and more popular in in young adults and so we are gonna try and recruit people that that vape but but for the research question we could have used any addiction really but this is just a practical consideration of what would be uh what kind of participants would we would be relatively easy to recruit Mm. we hope we think all right and are you referring to you know the addiction to love so not just being in love or are you focused on people who tend to seek out love in a way that causes really unwanted consequences to their lives so that's a good distinction to make so yeah so that will be addiction to love you know people that are always in love maybe maybe not to their benefit mm. um what we are studying is whether sort of the regular love any like the, just the typical love feelings that people feel for a partner how that is similar to being addicted to something so not so addicted to your beloved as opposed to being addicted to love okay yeah, that's a good distinction yep got it um and um i just um uh, i want to hear your thoughts on this so uh what do you think about our ability to fall in love so easily so do you think this is a feature or a bug of the human mind 
That's a good question. Well, people people vary, right? Some people fall in love very easily and they fall out of love very easily too, maybe. And then some people only fall in love once and stay together forever. So so it differs between people. Um, in general, um, from an evolutionary perspective, our goal is to reproduce as much as possible, mm. whether you like it or not. And love helps us reproduce, right? Sexual desire helps us have sex and, and, and get... Uh, make babies basically um and then infatuation helps you not reproduce with a random person not just a one-night stand but with someone with really good genes so someone who's really smart or really healthy or uh, strong um and attachment helps us stick together long enough so that we can raise children because human babies are very very vulnerable and really do better if they have both parents around at least for the first couple of years um so from that perspective love is very helpful in reaching our really our only goal in life um so so um you know falling in love easily is maybe a feature yep from an evolutionary perspective of course nowadays we have a lot more goals in life than just have children right because not all of us want children or can have <laughs> children that's okay uh you can lead a, a happy life and a satisfying life without children too of course um, but from an evolutionary perspective that is your goal to to produce as many children as possible okay. oh, of course um well that's that's a lot to say about love uh would you like to would you like to leave us with any words from your side where do you hope to see your future like your future research go and um, why is it that you devoted to um you know you devoted your entire career to this yeah well so so my main uh, motivation is just curiosity. I'm just very curious. Mm. Um, love happens to almost everyone. So it is something that applies to almost all people as opposed to, you know, mental disorders only applies to like half the population, which is still a huge number of people. Um, but love applies to all of us. It impacts us greatly when we fall in love. Um, it is related to our, like I said, our main evolutionary goal in life. Um, and so I'm mostly just curious how this how it works um but i also hope that eventually my work will help um decrease any negative um effects of love such as you know heartbreak for example and increase the positive effects of love because we also know for example happy relationships are really good for life satisfaction and so there's a lot of good stuff that comes from love and a lot of bad stuff so i hope to increase the good effects and decrease the bad effects of love eventually with my research yep. oh that's that's honestly amazing thank you dr sandra for not just for being here but for all the work that you've been doing uh, to advance our understanding of romantic relationships um, so hopefully, um, after this episode, we won't walk into a relationship blindly. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, for all you listeners out there, you can reach Dr. Sandra via her academic profile provided in the show notes. I've also provided a link to her list of discussed publications. Um, and, um, yeah, so do feel free to reach out uh, with any further questions. Uh, throughout this episode, we explained the science and key mechanisms underlying romantic love. We outlined um, tools for those seeking to find a strong, healthy relationship or for those wanting to strengthen an existing relationship. Uh, so yeah, um, if you're enjoying this episode, please leave us with a comment or a view wherever you listen to it. Uh, until next time, thank you for listening. And more importantly, thank you for your interest in science. Goodbye.